Next thing I know, I come in the kitchen, and he says, I'm looking out, and I'm like, what the hell is that blue light out there, man? He goes, dude, it was like This is Robert Bush. It's 2009, and he's working as a paranormal investigator, looking into the otherworldly on behalf of the U.S. government. You heard me right. He's telling us about a guy he went to interview in Ventura County, California, who had been witnessing strange happenings by his place. And it seemed like it was like a wormhole is what how he described it opened up. And to Bush, this guy didn't seem batty. He seemed credible. Uh, like Bush, he was former law enforcement, well-spoken, put together. So Bush and his team organized 24-hour surveillance of the property. They set up their gear, cameras. And we had thermal devices. We had some night vision devices. On the first day, they set up. They wait and wait. It was uneventful. But on the second night, on a clear California night in July. All of a sudden, this fog rolls in, and it was just like a typical boogeyman movie. You know, this fog, I'm not kidding you, the, the fog rolls in, dude, and it is getting so thick right now, and you could tell the temperature had dropped drastically. Well, next thing you know, just like in the movies, the equipment starts failing. Batteries start getting drained out of the equipment. Like a summer storm, out of nowhere, the night went from normal to weird. While they're trying to process what's going on, something catches Bush and the team's attention. And then I look, and from our observation post, you could see a street light off in the distance. This night, it totally disappears. I'm like, dude, this is bizarre. Bush and some of his team drive down to get a closer look at what exactly is happening in the fog. And I'm like, okay, boom. You guys run security. All right, you watch in that direction. I jump out, I got a digital handheld camera, and I start taking photographs. And I'm like, bap, 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 taking photographs as fast as I can. And uh, next thing you know, we're looking at it, and we see this, this orb, is all I can describe it as, but it was about the size of a, of a basketball. And it looked luminescent. It dropped down out of this cloud that it totally engulfed this light post and hovered off the ground. You could not see anything. An orb descending like a sci-fi snowflake from this low-hanging cloud. That's when I was looking up into that cloud, and that's why I had to ask everybody else, do you see what I see in there? What did he see? And I'm telling you, three big heads with big eyes, right? You can't see a craft, you can't see anything, it's invisible, but I'm telling you, in that cloud, in that vapor, in that mist, whatever you want to call it, were three very, very distinct heads and eyes. And that wasn't like they were looking out of a craft, out of a porthole, or out of a window or something like that. It was like, like, dude, they were there. And, uh, and I was like, no way. Bush didn't lose his mind. He had a job to do. So we're calling back to the command post and are you getting any of this on video? Are you getting this on video? No, no, the stuff's still going down, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, man, you ain't gonna believe these pictures. Soon, the fog fades. The beings disappear. It's like the light switch was flipped back to normal. The team goes out to the field to investigate the area. There was no footprints out there. There was no disturbance whatsoever, any vegetation, any surrounding area, none whatsoever. This is what Bush signed up for. But of course, nothing can prepare you for a three-headed being emerging out of thin air. I could not explain it, dude, but it still wakes me out. I mean, you just can't explain it, but it was there. 
Bush was a subcontractor sent to look into weird shit, working under a multi-million dollar U.S. government contract. Let's review for a moment, dear listener. Since 2017, To the Stars has been clamoring for UAP to be considered a matter of national defense. Two former government guys left their jobs, got the fighter pilot videos out to the public, all to pressure the government to take action. And yet, out of public view less than a decade earlier, the government was already looking into the otherworldly as a matter of national defense. What they were up to, well, it wasn't at all what it seemed. After years of trying, I was finally able to hear directly from someone involved in that program, on the record, Robert Bush. Bush helped me piece things together. And of course, dear listener, our conversation raised new questions too. This transmission, we spend a day with a real former Fox Mulder, a foot soldier marching us forward to a new understanding of our strange world. I'm MJ Benias. From something else, this is Fringe Network, Alien State. Transmission 4, The Real X-Files. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Turn left onto West Hacienda Avenue. All right, here we go. Months in the making of planning for this meeting for someone who has remained quiet for so long. I'm very excited for this, I have to be honest. Turn right. Skinwalker Ranch wasn't the only stop for me and Casey, my producer, on our paranormal road trip. Our next stop, Sin City, Las Vegas, was to talk to Robert Bush. He's the guy you heard at the top, the one contracted to X-File back in 2009. Around the time, Lou Elizondo started interviewing fighter pilots. Elizondo, Mellon, the To the Stars guys, they talk about the security risk of having unknown craft hanging out around U.S. military activities. When they are calling for the government and public to investigate this matter, it sounds extremely reasonable. It's the story we all heard about, the whole reason I have this show and my bosses have paid for me to speak into this microphone made of solid gold, even the internal parts. It uh, actually makes for a really lousy mic, but they'll meet any demand I make. But what people like Robert Bush experienced? Well, his story sounds like J.J. Abrams' holy grail, right? And yet, this is probably the first time you're hearing about it. What gives? While the To The Stars guys are out talking to Joe Rogan and Coast To Coast every chance they get, investigators like Bush have been pretty zipped up. I have talked to seven people who work with Bush or worked under the same program as him, and many expressed they'd like to go on the record, but can't. But finally, Bush agreed to talk to me, on record, going public for the first time. Oh, it's from Robert. He said, Hey MJ, 
You as well. Welcome, brother. I tried calling you when I arrived here only to find my house tossed. What? Tossed? Like robbed? Working on getting locks repaired. Oh, my God. And report. We had just arrived in Las Vegas, and this was, um, well, a surprising start. Do you think it was the government? I gotta be honest. Department of Homeland Security. Wow. They, they love us. They knew we were coming. They knew we were coming. Oh, my God. Luckily, this didn't deter Bush. He suggested we meet at a 24-hour Italian restaurant where you can dine, and because it's Vegas, gamble. At the same time. Bush eventually strolls in. He's a stocky buff guy in his early 60s. Gray stubble on his chin. He looks a bit frazzled. Casey, nice to Thank meet you, you for too. joining us. Oh, yes, absolutely. Holy, your house got, like, your apartment got tossed. Yeah, yeah. It turns out maintenance entered his apartment without his knowledge to do some work. And they left his place a mess. It looked like a break-in. The conclusion he jumped to first, though, tells you a lot about how Bush sees the world. But he just spooked me, so I apologize if I'm a little tired or whatever. It's just like I said, it's been a brutal but You guys don't mind going in the bathroom real quick? Go ahead. No, all of us, so we can strip down, make sure there's no covert mics or audio video recording devices or anything like that. Uh, are you joking? <laughs> I knew they'd throw you for a loop, but I'm like, that's the way we used to do stuff in the business. You yep, know what I mean? this guy was telling us to go strip down for him to check for wires, after we agreed to a recorded interview. Fun guy. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Uh, Stella? Okay. Make that two. We sit down, order some food, some beers and begin to try to understand the path his life would take that would lead him to X-Filing. Women got me caught up in him having a baby, so it was like, you know what? You're going into military, so that's why I started my career off, you know? Bush's dad, a cop, makes him enlist in the army at 17. Later, he joins the Las Vegas police in criminal investigation. I don't see things like you guys see things. I'm always in that fight or flight. He says he's hypersensitive to his environment. His eyes move around to check if anyone is following him. He jumps if there's an unexpected noise. Sitting with Bush isn't like sitting with the other government guys or Brandon Fugel of Skinwalker Ranch. He doesn't sound like he's delivering media talking points or pushing an agenda. It feels like he's trying to process, like he's been through some shit. And and, and that's what screws my PTSD besides that helplessness feeling of not being able to save somebody's life. I've been in there involved in killing people, uh, and, and it's, it's not a good mindset, you know what I mean? Bush wanted to serve some greater mission, and he lives with the consequences of that work. While with the Las Vegas PD, he teamed up with Homeland Security and was a specialist within the Technical Analytics Services Division because of his background in covert and intelligence operations. But unlike Elizondo, he didn't move up in the intel world. He bounced around. He trained people in making surveillance equipment. Going out from Radio Shack and building covert audio and video interception devices and knowing how to do GPSs and tracking and close in The next natural job is to be a PI. That's a private investigator for long, but turns out that's boring. So he keeps searching for a job that would let him look into something a little more interesting. And then I went online and actually I think it was through Indeed, uh, the job site, and I seen that they were coming up with, you know, Bigelow Aerospace. Yes, 
indeed. A covert government mission exploring the paranormal was indeed posted on Indeed. Of course, that's not exactly how it was phrased in the listing. The posting was for an investigator with an affiliate company of Bigelow Aerospace, which is owned by Robert Bigelow, the man who became a multi-millionaire off extended stay motels, bought Skinwalker Ranch, then sold it to Brendan Fugel. Bush sends in his resume and the next thing he knows, he gets a call from a guy named Colm Kelleher. Kelleher is a biochemist. He interviews Bush for a job looking into UFO reports. He explained that a big part of our job was trying to identify um, what these anomalies were based on propulsion, based on maneuverability, and so on and so forth. So, And then Kelleher starts asking Bush if he's into weird shit. Have I heard of MUFON? Have I heard of these different agencies and projects and so on and so forth? And I said yes. That's right. Bush wasn't just a vet who could make surveillance equipment with stuff from Radio Shack. He had had a lifelong weird shit interest. The first organization he lists, MUFON, is not a muffin enthusiast group. It's the Mutual UFO Network. It's been around for decades. It's where regular people can report strange happenings. You just saw an orb floating in your backyard one day? Well, it's the place to submit a report. Then, other regular Joes who thought investigating this stuff is a cool hobby would look into it. MUFON, they still exist, by the way. Recently, they were looking into an extremely loud noise that erupted in Pittsburgh on New Year's Day in 2022. Anyways, Bush, with his background and knowledge of UFO networks that make me want a muffin, was an ideal candidate. I was always that inquisitive type person that I'm like, hell yeah, I'm a... Big into numerology and that kind of stuff. Like when the Zodiac Killer came out, it used to drive me nuts. If I'm not able to solve anything, it would be definitely, it's one of those things that just bends your mind. You can't stop. It's like a drug, you know. You can't stop till you get to the end of it. Needless to say, he was stoked to investigate the unexplainable. You know, those things that are truly can, can't be explained. And yeah, I was like, yeah, I'll jump on this with the quickness. By this point in our conversation, our bellies are full. Our beer's empty. Bush tells us we're not far from the Bigelow offices where he used to work and offers to take us there. We settle the tab and head out. Go ahead in the front. Yes. Yes, please. Oh, thank you. So for Bush, this sounded like a dream job. But why was anyone hiring for this position? The answer to that question is a short drive away for Casey and myself, and it's an ad break away for you. Now, feast your ears on special offers. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. 
Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. What really sparked my interest was, you know, you're talking about national security. I'm sorry. I'm driving in Vegas. Our producer Casey is in the back seat recording. Robert Bush is in the front seat, giving me directions to his old office where he worked for Bigelow Aerospace back in 2009. While we're on our way, let me tell you how this program came to be and how Bush got his dream job. As you can imagine, it's a very straightforward and not at all sketchy affair. This office we are on our way to came about because James Lekatsky saw a yellow floating Mobius strip at Skinwalker Ranch. Remember, he met with Bigelow and then used his DIA connections to turn on the government money faucet. Now, let's unpack how all that happened. So, prepare yourself, dear listener. Take your art off your wall, put your cell phone in the freezer, draw the curtains so no one can spy, and get your red yarn ready. Here's what we know. Bigelow's company, Bigelow Aerospace, got a boatload of taxpayer money around 2008, allowing them to study his monster mash ranch, chase UFOs, and hire guys like Bush. So the big question we want to answer is, how did they get the money? Well, it had a lot to do with a Nevada senator who has a long reputation for paranormal disclosure, Harry Reid. Lekatsky had told Reed about the orbs and his idea about studying the ranch. And Reed was like, heck yes, I'll whip up the funds to make sure these agents have cool sunglasses and that device that makes people forget things like in the movies. But raising men in black money, even as a very powerful senator, is a tricky thing to accomplish. I interviewed Harry Reed in 2020, the year before he passed away. So I asked him how it went down. So in the original bid for the contract, it seems that like UFOs and UAP are not mentioned in it. Um, and there's been a lot of discrepancy. That, that, was, that was done on purpose. That was done on purpose. Okay. Can you, can you explain that? Like why, why do that on purpose? But if you read a uh, document closely, you will find that it certainly could include lots of different things. We thought, the people putting out the bid thought it would be better that it didn't say flying saucers or unidentified flying objects. You know, it was just a catch-all phrase to include just about anything. Right. Basically, the proposal to look into UFOs didn't mention anything about UFOs. It didn't mention Skinwalker Ranch or doing any kind of monster mash at all. Instead, it requested money to figure out how to make the Weapons of the future. Because I perpetually think in movie terms, I picture an Ocean's Eleven moment. Okay, scene. Fade in, 
It's 2007. Then Senator Reed, nuclear scientist Lukatsky, and multi-millionaire Bigelow are all standing in front of the Bellagio Fountain in Vegas, nursing lukewarm beers. They're in a pickle. They need to convince the government to give them money to look into UFOs, non-human entities, the things allegedly seen at Skinwalker Ranch. But how? Reed pipes up first, suggesting they rob a casino. But Bigelow and Lukatsky talk him down. There's a brief moment of silence. The Bellagio Fountain springs to life. And the answer comes to Lukatsky. What does Congress and the Pentagon love? Weapons. Reed turns his head, a grin slowly appearing on his face. Lukatsky winks. UFOs are basically new weapons, future weapons. The two of them start to giggle. We just say we need money to look into aerospace weapons tech from the future. Reed whispers to himself, you genius son of a bitch, that's the perfect way to pitch this. We cross cut to the three of them in an office. Reed is pacing back and forth, wringing his hands. Lukatsky feverishly types the proposal. We're in a technological foot race with our adversaries. Bigelow is reading over Lukatsky's shoulder. Aha, these saps are gonna love this. Reed stops pacing. That's it. We call it AWSAP. AWSAP, they say, stands for the Advanced Aerospace Weapon Systems Application Program. But I like to think it's, ah, you guys in the Pentagon are saps. Jump cut to the next day, Reed walking into the Pentagon and throwing the proposal down on the desk of some higher-up bureaucrat whose signature this all depends on. The director eyes Reed up and down. So, let me get this straight, he says. You want money to study futuristic advanced weapons? Reed swallows hard, a moment of doubt. Does this guy know we're going to capture a monster from the other dimension and not give him new futuristic weapons proposals? Is the jig up? But just when Reed was about to break, the director slaps his desk. You're a real badass. Harry, make him bleed Reed. I know. I know, I'm going to make an awesome narrator of it. Once my movie is greenlit, my microphone will be made of diamonds. But until then, dear listener, let's zero in on the important facts. Reed's proposal to the Department of Defense said nothing about UFOs. Nothing about trying to create a SEAL Team skinwalker. It said nothing weird at all. Instead, they promised they'd provide research into weapons technology 50 years into the future. That's how they got $22 million. And with Reed's senatorial power, he made money rain like a mid-2000s music video set in a strip club. Once approved, the people at the Pentagon looked to find a contractor. Yes, the Pentagon loves to outsource. According to Christopher Mellon, the former Pentagon guy, there was really only one company that seriously took the bid. He says the only bidder for this $22 million government contract to look at <clears throat> the weapons of the future was Bigelow's company. So that's how Nevada-based mogul Robert Bigelow was given government funds to study his own ranch and build out an HQ, that's headquarters for long, in Las Vegas. At Skinwalker Ranch, Bigelow had a small team of investigators who spent their days looking for giant wolves that can't be killed by bullets, 
watching electromagnetic readers and Geiger counters, searching for signs from the beyond, logging who came in and out of the property. They even set up baby toys and tried to communicate with the intelligence that allegedly lives on the ranch. But he also had a whole other operation. This is the building right here. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah, like the, t- the, the roof of the building is this strange, like, UFO-shaped dome to it. Dome, yeah. yeah it's. Yeah. I pull in and park outside the gated building. It's not terribly large. It's tan with a pastel green trim. The building is surrounded by budget-in suites. That's Bigelow's hotel chain. Behind it, the backdrop of Vegas, the neon glow of an adult theme park. If you're going to put an office that was designed to look like a UFO anywhere, Vegas does seem like the place. We couldn't go inside, but Bush remembers the place and its rhythms. You'd go into this entrance right here, you'd be met with another security guard. He'd wand you to make sure that you didn't have anything on you. Then your cell phones and all your personal belongings would be uh, retained in a locker off to the side, which is in a little hallway off to the right over here. Bush was thrilled to get to work. Stuff. I was like, hell yeah, put me in. You know, I, I want to get involved in this because, you know, that's what I mean. That's what I said. I'll protect this country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. It doesn't matter who they are, but yeah. So even out of this world. Yeah, even out of this world. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So Bush seemed to pass the initial tests at his new gig. And we went on a mock exercise where an aircraft had actually went down. He says they were developing training protocols on what to do in case he was investigating a UFO crash. It was a simulated like a UAP or something like that, that a UFO that went down. And then we went out to actually process the crime scene, so to speak, you know, based so, on Bigelow's protocol. So you went to cra- almost like a crash retrieval 100%. exercise, like a UFO crash retrieval One, exercise. 100%. Just in case a UFO crashed. 100%. 100%. Wow. I'd love to have seen it. Once Bush and his fellow agents were thoroughly trained, the paperwork began. And we'd look through the reports, anything that sparked an interest. Now, where did Bush and his colleagues get their files from? MUFON, of course. People like the former police officer in California who saw a wormhole out of his window. Ordinary folks who looked into the sky and believed they saw something extraordinary. Bigelow's company, funded by a U.S. intelligence agency, bought access to MUFON's database in 2008, including interview transcripts and any collected evidence. Anyways, task one for Bush, after placing his cell phone in a locker, was to look through files and see if there was anything he should investigate further. Whether it was an aircraft or some anomaly or something like that, or whatever it was going we would just read through there and say, okay, yeah, this sounds like this is legit, this sounds like this is not... I think I mentioned Bush guesses they went through around 10 to 20 of these reports a day, sussing them out. Despite the subject matter, the building exterior, and the heavy security, it was very much an office job, filled with managers managing. We would have daily briefings in that particular room, and we would go over cases in general. What's going on out there, guys? You know, what are you finding out there? You know, how are you handling this? Do your witness seems to be credible? There were even guest speakers. I won't mention any names, but we had marine fighter pilots. We had other individuals that would come in and give classified briefings. The Navy pilot videos showing the tic-tac-shaped UAP? Bush says they saw them before the rest of us. He kept track of any new technology that was being worked on, where it was coming from, and where it was going. 
I always had my chart was right there on my wall that any new aircraft that was being tested, regardless of where it was and from what country it was from, it was identified on there. We had different programs on our computers. We knew of every military and every civilian satellite that was deployed. So they'd have a better chance of correctly identifying an aircraft. Okay, is this one of ours? Is it one of theirs? Is it terrestrial? Is it extraterrestrial? Days consisted of calling witnesses, discussing cases as a team, cross-referencing what should and shouldn't be in the sky. They'd try to debunk things from the office. Anything that seemed promising went to the guy who interviewed Bush, Colm Kelleher, and then, presumably, Robert Bigelow. If the bigwigs were intrigued, a team of three investigators would be sent out to explore. There are cases that, to this day, Bush thinks about, like one in Crown Point, New Mexico, at a pumping station. An operator of the facility is describing what took place where it was like, I think, about 100 foot long, like 50 foot tall, six foot around in diameter, uh, concrete pillars that are down into the ground over these pumping station. And this guy was in charge of the pumping station, and he's reporting that all of a sudden, this stuff's picked up and thrown like a couple hundred yards away. Bush tries to find a non-creepy explanation. So I started going on to the uh, NOAA and all the rest of it to try and find out what the weather conditions were during the time that he was reporting the incident. There was no microburst. There was absolutely nothing that could explain what was going on. No earthquakes, no tornadoes. But yeah, it just blew my mind that something could have that kind of destructive force, just pick it up and move it right. with no explanation. And I don't know why we ever followed up on it. Yeah, let's pause. Bigelow's company had outfitted the building, created procedures, you know, made the operation legit. But for Bush, things just weren't adding up. After the case in Ventura County, California, where he saw the fog and the bright orb and big-eyed creatures, he hoped immediate action would be taken. I was kind of a little chapped a little bit, in a manner of speaking, because when I did an initial briefing to Kelleher... The guy who interviewed him, the biochemist and told them what my observations were and what we had concurred as a team what was going on in there. And he was like, no, he was like adamant, no, that's artifact and that's lens flare, that's this and that. His boss was enthusiastic about the reports, but they had a disagreement over what was in one photo. This was real. I couldn't walk up and touch it to tell you that, yes, it's tangible, that it's right there. But I'm telling you what I seen. And I'm telling you that when the very next night we went out to try and replicate it, we could not do it. Okay, and in the daylight, there was no evidence. Couldn't be duplicated. After experiencing something like this, something that didn't have an easy, normal, everyday explanation, Bush felt like a lot more investigating money and time and equipment should really go into this area. If I was in charge of this program, I'd send a larger team to follow up, set up surveillance equipment, try to communicate with the beings, you know, the whole nine yards. And I'd slap Bush on the arm and give him an attaboy and maybe a promotion. Maybe even give him clearance to a secret floor so he can continue investigating his amazing discovery with the state-of-the-art gear that's been kept hidden. So that's what happens, right? No, dear listener, this isn't the movies. And then he just said, okay, thank you for your report and all the rest of that. And then that was it. We don't know what, I have no idea what they did with the reports from here. And that was it. Bush, the X-File agent had experienced something truly disturbing. He dutifully returned to HQ with footage and reports, but it seemed like nothing came of it. Then, soon after, 
They started doing it in their spurts. At first, the office was full. But quickly, the staff of X-Filers began to shrink. It was like, okay, this one, this one. Hey, where'd so-and-so go? Oh, they were like, oh, the other day. Okay, then I say, hey, they want to see you upstairs. My team leader, calm. And it was like, okay, we're downsizing. We're starting to do this and that, making a transition. Humana, humana, then I'm out the door. After roughly four months of working for Bigelow, Bush says he was fired. As abruptly as this transition to an ad break. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. We're back. Once again, we're thinking about what the world might look like once we lose, stop using, or just run out of things that feel essential to our existence. What happens when we can't rely on fossil fuels anymore? Is eating meat really all that ethically dubious? How are ads shaping our impulses, and what happens if they go away? So join us as we try to piece together what happens when the things we've taken for granted start to disappear. From Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment, listen to Without wherever you get your podcasts. Not long after being hired, Bush and his fellow ex-filers were fired. In hindsight, Bush saw the red flags. People were like disgruntled in that sense. It's like, man, yeah, we we're underpaid, you know, overworked, the typical thing. You know, there was no sense of direction. The left hand didn't know. From right. Bush's perspective, the company had no real plan for things that truly seemed unexplainable. We, you know, how are we bagging this evidence? How are we tagging this evidence? How are we going to go out and actually confront this situation, you know? And one of Bush's biggest gripes was that the fancy equipment wasn't fancy enough. In my opinion, we had nowhere near the amount of equipment that we needed to do a really efficient, you know, analysis of that property and or surveillance of that property. You look at ghost hunters and other organizations that have sensors and, you know, have whether it's passive infrared devices, whether it's seismic, cheesing it up is what I call it. You're sending me out to do a rodeo, you're giving me a half-ass pair of chaps. I got one chap over here, my cowboy boys ain't got no heels on him, forget about it. What am I going to do, right? It was unclear to Bush that anyone had their shit together. The behind the scenes was as mysterious as his adventures in the field. As we're looking at the building, he points to a door. To the right back here, they had a secure room that once we brought evidence in from the field, we wouldn't even go in through this area right here. We'd be met at the back door here, and we'd go in the back there. See how they got these yeah, yeah. doors set up back there? And then it was all secured and processed. I, I don't know what they did with any of the evidence. He has no idea where any of his work or his reports have gone. I've always been like an overachiever. And my father instilled that into me from a young time that you want to be the best that you can possibly be. But the job that he hoped could be a meaningful career ended unceremoniously. And the crap equipment, the vagueness, made him feel like it was a waste of time. And when I feel like I failed at something, especially something like this, you're talking about national security, it's still to this day, why we did not go to Crown Point, New Mexico, to me... This was the case of the pumping station that Bush found very compelling. That was a case, if any case should have been, why didn't we go there unless somebody else was involved? 
So this mysterious program left Bush with even more mysteries. What happened to the data he collected? Were more people involved? Why were he and his co-workers fired? Well, according to Christopher Mellon, the guy in the Pentagon on 9-11, the one who told us that Bigelow was the only bidder, not everyone was stoked about the program and what it was up to. The Pentagon didn't want this program. They didn't cooperate with him. Mellon wasn't involved in this program, and he didn't have a high opinion of it. I'm not saying that the program was, uh, was worthless, but it certainly was not what I think the senators hoped and intended it would be. I guess the jig was up. Maybe the DIA realized they were funding investigations of werewolves in Utah and wormholes in California, not the new weapons research they were hoping for. And maybe that explains the subpar gear, the layoffs, the cases they didn't look into. And if you build a building, hire staff, and buy even not the best equipment, you can blow through $22 million pretty quickly, right? Maybe. Maybe that's the whole story. But let's take the pictures your kids drew off the walls, throw your phone in the garbage disposal, and get out the red yarn again. Bush himself was expendable. He said he wasn't paid much. Others I've spoken to have also said the same thing. It seems like they hired a bunch of foot soldiers to go and do the grunt work. So maybe you give them crappy gear and see what they come back with. Maybe you keep them siloed and you cut them loose when they're no longer needed. And then, what if in those back rooms Bush was never allowed in, you have the credentialed scientists, the the real experts, going through the data, doing who knows what with it? Dear listener, I swear I haven't completely lost it. Am I connecting threads? You bet I am. But I'm not just wildly speculating. Keller, the biochemist who interviewed and dismissed Bush, well, he and our pal Lukatsky, the nuclear scientist who saw a Mobius strip at Skinwalker Ranch, they wrote a book about their time working on this UFO program. In it, they devote a whole chapter to Bush's Ventura County, California case. In the book, they say they sent all the evidence to the DIA, as well as a 257-page report that included Bush's description of seeing faces in the cloud. The book says they turned in the report, but doesn't say if anything was done afterwards. So, what was going on? Uh, Let me spin you some theories, dear listener. One, maybe they had been unsuspectingly slipped acid, which uh, is a thing that the U.S. government has actually done, but that's for a different time. For the record, I know that acid doesn't make you see monsters like this, or at least so people have told me. But you know, Maybe they were slipped some sort of drug. Two, maybe it was holograms. Remember hologram Tupac? Maybe the DoD were actually testing weapons of the future, weapons that make people think monsters are among us. Three, maybe the desire to see something, the desire to know that we are not alone, spending all your time thinking about that and preparing yourself to see something, maybe that can alter perception. Or four, Maybe they experienced something from out of this world, or out of this dimension. For me, the more you know, the the more you dig in, the harder it is to sound sane. There is a program run by an owner of a haunted ranch based out of a building shaped like a UFO. How the hell am I supposed to take this seriously? 
but millions of tax dollars went into it, and people with the highest credentials, a Senate leader, a federal scientist, moguls, all, they all backed it. And lest we forget, we have the pilot videos and testimonies, so why not take it seriously? I strut and fret about the stage, I, I interview people involved, I track these UFO cases down, and the more I find, the more absurd it seems. It's full of sound and fury, and it sounds totally idiotic, but what does it signify? Okay, okay, breathe, step back, string is everywhere, food wrappers are on the floor, there's this weird smell you don't even smell anymore in your apartment. Let's look at the big picture. What, what does it all add up to, dear listener? I do not know. Let's, let's look for connections. James Lekatsky, who went to Skinwalker and saw the Mobius Strip. James Lekatsky, who wanted to get the funding to explore the ranch. The same guy who met with Lou Elizondo. Remember this? I met the, the director. Very intelligent, very no-nonsense, and, and just a decent, good human being. He was very committed to it. Um, and that's when he, he asked me the question, what I thought about UFOs. Elizondo describes the work he did looking into UAP, and it sounds pretty different from what Lekatsky was investigating. Elizondo said this on CNN. The purpose of the program was identify those things that we see, whether uh, we see them electro-optically, we see them with radar, and try to ascertain and determine if that information is a potential threat to national security, in a nutshell. Lekatsky was running a whole other program that investigated reports like this. In that mist, whatever you want to call it, in that right there were three very, very distinct heads and eyes. Lekatsky got the ball rolling on the real-life X-Files stuff. He also got Elizondo interested in the national defense stuff. These things are different, but connected. Everything is connected. Bigelow's company, with all his X-Filers and his ranch full of paranormal activity, didn't change existence as we know it, at least not publicly. So what hope do we have for To the Stars and the like-minded people who held senior positions in the U.S. government that helped get the fighter pilot videos released? You have a lot of places in the government that are waiting for us to do something wrong so they can shut the whole thing down. Next transmission, dear listener, To the Stars falls back to Earth. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold and breathe? You get into ice water, and instead of, like, freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof method? We can override even death. Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. Alien State is hosted by me, MJ Benias. It's reported by me and Casey Georgie. Produced by Casey Georgie. Our associate producer is Stephanie Aguilar. Written by Grant Irving, Casey Georgie, and myself. Editing by Lizzie Jacobs and Megan Dietrich. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly. 
Music by Nolan Schneider. Sound design by Grant Irving and Sam Baer. Engineering by Sam Baer. Our executive producers are Grant Irving, Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anthony LePay. Special thanks to Pallavi Kotamasu, Steve Ackerman, Charlie Yador, and Danielle Jones-Wesley. Thanks to our legal team, Nimra Azmi and Alison Shari, for Davis Wright Tremaine. 